This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. I always have to just invent everything for myself, where if I just looked around and read what other people did, that I would just learn about it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Instead of doing that, I always just have to figure it out by myself. It's something that everybody else already figured out. Hello, I'm Emily Berry, editor of The Poetry Review. Today I'm going to be talking to Chelsea Minnis, who's visiting London from the US. Hello, Chelsea. It's wonderful to have you here. Hi, thank you for having me. Chelsea grew up in Denver, Colorado. She attended the University of Colorado at Boulder and the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Her new book, just published by Wave in the US, is Baby, I Don't Care. Her previous books are Zirconia, Foxina, Bad Bad and Poemland. She also writes screenplays. Chelsea gave a reading of her work in London a few days ago at which she told us, the audience, the subject of one of her screenplays which involved a house haunted by the ghost of a killer whale, which is totally awesome. We published some excerpts from Chelsea's book, Baby I Don't Care, in the summer 2017 issue of the Poetry Review, which is a while ago now, and that book is reviewed in the current issue, Autumn 2018, by Sam Riviere. But while Chelsea was in London, we thought we just had to take the opportunity to record this podcast with her. So I'll ask Chelsea if you could read a section from the excerpts that appeared in the magazine. Be great. So this is Propositions. Go ahead, slap me. It's been a long day and I'm thirsty. So why don't you get the blazes out of here? Since you won't tell me, I'll tell you. It's either a rowboat proposal or a murder. I can run circles around someone running in circles. Now pull the Venetian blinds and let's talk. This business requires a certain amount of finesse. Now I'm going to tell a very long, very dirty joke. This could be hard on your pocketbook. You've got to love someone abominably, don't you? Then why are my cheeks all wet? I'm ready for my row of drinks. This poem is so fucking showy, but you're going to take it. Let's have a little midnight supper in my room. I'll get a hold of myself in a minute, darling. You do the praying and I'll handle the dice. All of this ends in a note on the dresser. That's the way it is in a large way. I haven't any bows and I don't have any prospects. I'm a social flop. I hate it when my pens run dry. I'd like some champagne soup. Do you think there's a chance I could make you perfectly miserable? I only need a little encouragement to keep me going. Now don't fog up your reading glasses. How about a fistful of opals? I love it when you get high-minded. Darling, I would never strike first. Don't be so hard to love. I like you and all the rest of it, but I'm going to throw you out of my kitchen. Don't ruin the ideal arrangement with your broad shoulders. Why not kiss in a doorway if you can? Church, it bores me. I want to live in a system with you. Let's wear lots of gold jewelry and pajamas. I withdraw that face lap and all the drinks I threw in your face. All that remains of the business is romance. Why don't you give me some refreshing diamonds? We're a fine couple of tramps. So what? Let's get dressed up and stay home. You can't do a thing to me. Not a thing. It's a very slow getaway, darling. I guess I thought I'd start by just asking you a bit about the book. You talked a bit the other night about the relationship of film to your work. And in the book, 
Turner Movie Classics, which is a American TV channel, is thanked, I think, number one in the acknowledgements. I often have to bribe myself to write. So that would be maybe like, I don't know, different things. Um, sparkling water. <laughs> or, or I'll say, oh, you can turn the TV on at first to get started. So often I would bribe myself and say, I get to turn on Turner Classic Movies and have it on while I start writing. Oh, wow, that's great. And then I would leave it on. So at first I would just ignore it and let it sort of be there as a comfort. And then I would decide, well, I might as well be a little inspired by it. So I would sort of write images inspired by the movies that I would see. And then I just was like, well, let's just write down some lines. <laughs> you know, It was really just kind of like a progressive like heist of stealing from it. But <laughs> It just was one of my favorite, most comforting things, classic movies, and I would watch them so much, and then really I wouldn't know anything about them except just the movies themselves. So my husband might come in and say, oh, Waterloo Bridge again? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, how do you know that? And he'll be like, because you've seen it three times. <laughs> it was just an obsession, right? Yeah. So anyone who, you just write about your obsessions, and that's what I did. Reading the book, it's obviously just transports you into that kind of world like this sort of noir you've got a line people in their nightgowns smoking cigarettes they give great speeches and you can like imagine the speaker of the poems is sort of in that milieu when you sent me the poems two years ago for the magazine I think I remember you saying they were like you described them as five line poems and the excerpts that we published are in quite a different order than they appear in the finished book mm -hmm. I guess there may be bits that aren't actually in the finished book. I was kind of interested to know how the editing process worked. I haven't really been very interested in sort of book length structure for my other books. I just felt that I would write poems to where if you can flip through the pages and see something you like, that might be enough for you in that moment. So when I took a break from writing poetry and I started writing screenplays, you have to learn structure. And so it was really fun to learn structure and so I had already been studying the screenplay structure so I took a break then from writing screenplays went back to poetry and I thought I would go back to the old way of just writing short little poems that you can take you know have in a moment and then throw away probably <laughs> um, but then as I kept working on it, the book itself because I had been studying the other structure yeah. it just kind of naturally started to happen and so I started stringing them together and I thought well I can put these in a section and that section can have an arc that would be as similar to an arc you might have in a scene where your protagonist starts in one position and then ends up in the opposite position at the end and I thought that would be interesting to try and um, just became an organizing principle so that happened pretty quickly because I kind of thought I was ready to have the book just be a bunch of little poems. Then I really got excited, and I'm sure lots of other poets have already been excited by this before, but just the spaces between the poems. Yeah, And I yeah. thought, oh, this would be great. You know, I can just have those spaces be exciting. I always have to just invent everything for myself, where if I just looked around and read what other people did, that I would just learn about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but instead of doing that, I always just have to figure it out by myself. It's something that everybody else already figured out no but that's a great way because then it becomes I don't know unique or something well I then maybe like I make mistakes that then are my own special mistakes no no <laughs> I can't believe you would ever make any mistakes <laughs> <laughs> I take great pride in my own 
originality of my mistakes. <laughs> You've become kind of known for your use of ellipses in your sort of earlier books. Someone described them as like bullet holes, which <laughs> fits quite nicely with the film theme maybe. But you mentioning the use of space in the new book suggests that it's not that that has gone away. It's just taken on a new form or something maybe. I think it's because the poems I was writing before I was writing the ellipses were very short and stop lines. I remember when I went to then poetry school, this was kind of pointed out of, look how short these lines are. And I wasn't aware that they had even been writing short lines, but I felt, oh no, I need to write longer lines. So then I thought, well, how am I ever going to write them? I'm afraid to go further. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, am I allowed to keep writing the line longer? And so I was thinking maybe I put those dots there to kind of build a little, yeah, structure for me that kind of yeah, like, like lengthen. Stepping stones or yeah, something. Yeah, <laughs> lengthen the lines. But now that I'm so far away from poetry school and I can just revert back and say, oh, let's just have little short flat lines yeah. again. It's interesting what you say about going to poetry school and it being suggested that you should make your lines longer because obviously there's sort of a benefit of studying poetry that you discover things you wouldn't have come across and you maybe develop new techniques and so on. But I don't know if there's also a way in which you might find yourself being stifled or something like you suggesting that if you prefer the short line and now that you're at some distance from studying, you're returning to this sort of natural state. You know, if there was any stifling, it was just probably self-stifling because I wasn't actually being criticized for the short lines. I was actually being just pointed out, look at these short lines. This is something you can do. Then my maturity level was maybe such that I I was very reactive and thought, oh no, I shouldn't I should write long lines or I think poetry school can be <laughs> I mean, I think it can be really fun and I'm sure that lots can be made of it. I've learned over the years about myself that I tend to really absorb whatever's around me so mm. for example when I'm sitting there in front of the Turner classic movies I'm absorbing all that all the lines and that's okay because I know where it's coming from it's coming from those movies but yeah. when I think of myself surrounded for example if I were to teach right now and I surrounded by a class of young poets who would reading me their poems all the time like who's to say I wouldn't just steal all their lines yeah. you know what I'm saying <laughs> like I'm afraid that I would that's something that now I know more about myself that I didn't know back then. So I don't know if I did steal anyone's lines while at poetry school. I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess I could say that now. I think, well, it's uh, funny that you should say that because I think the other way around, your work has been quite a sort of influence on other poets, at least in the UK, like younger poets who read your work. I think it, I think there's some poets who's, who have such a distinctive voice that it becomes very catching or something. I often think myself when I'm reading certain people's work like oh I got to be a bit careful because I might just start mm. sort of speaking in this voice I don't know whether it's something you think about that much or were even sort of aware of but how do you feel about being an influence on people or if you were to sort of read work that you thought hang on a minute that sounds a bit like me um I don't know I guess because I don't read poetry I don't know maybe if I don't th know how I'd feel I think I would be like what 
what are you doing? You're crazy. Go imitate someone who, <laughs> who like won a MacArthur. You know? <laughs> Don't imitate me. I'm just like hanging around on the couch here watching Turner Classic Movies. I would advise people to try to choose better role models. <laughs> uh, uh, but no, I mean, honestly, that's really flattering. And I would hope that I could have been inspirational, you know, get people excited. And, and that's an honor. Yeah, I guess that's the only way you can look at it ultimately. Yeah, especially if it's young women. That makes me really happy. Young men, fine, but whatever, <laughs> men. <laughs> you can copy me, but I really want the women to copy me. <laughs> yeah, get out of there, young men. Is that wrong? No. <laughs> you just sort of dropped in there casually the bombshell that you don't read poetry, which is exciting. <laughs> I was thinking of asking you about this, in fact, because in Poemland you have a line, with my poetry I want to barricade myself from other people's poetry. And I thought of that the other day. I watched this clip of Stevie Smith's video from the BBC archives and the narrator said she has a basic dislike of all poetry and never reads it if she can possibly help it, which I thought was brilliant. And I sort of have this suspicion that a lot of poets have this feeling and it's not always appropriate to say of discomfort with poetry or maybe they don't read it as much as they say they do I don't know so I guess I wondered what do you think about that and well like- the, my favorite quote that I ever saw was there's this movie it's called Humoresque and it has John Garfield and Joan Crawford and he plays a violinist they ask him what do you listen to other violinists he says when they're bad, I'm bored. When they're good, I'm jealous. And that's exactly how I feel. It's like, I really don't need to read poetry that's better than mine because I honestly, I cannot have that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, because yeah. it's hard enough to get, you know, my courage up to write my own poetry. So yeah. like, I won't be having anything. So I love things that are really good that are fiction or plays or screenplays because then I don't have that conflict of insecurity. But if it's horrible, you know, then it's even worse because I just, I won't have that either. (laughs) (laughs) Often going back to the poetry school, one of the first things you get told is like, you've got to read poetry, read as much poetry as you can. Right, right. But isn't that sort of like a pyramid scheme? I I just (laughs) always feel like they always say that go buy everyone else's book and then they'll buy your book and then we'll all just be you know, buying each other's books. I don't... I do think that sometimes. I'm I'm always so excited when I meet someone who likes poetry who isn't a poet because then I think, you really do like it then. (laughs) You've got no skin in the game or whatever. You're just in it for... Yeah, I used to always have the fantasy of like, there is a market for poetry, you know, it just hasn't been... No one's ever tapped that market or whatever. But the truth is some poets have. Like Maya Angelou... So some people do. and Well, that does seem to be increasingly possible. There's a conversation going on, I guess, in the UK poetry world about the professionalisation of poetry. We've actually got an essay on the topic in the coming upcoming issue. And that was something I wanted to ask you about, in fact, because your poems sort of play with the relationship between poetry and money in a sort of jokey way, but there's maybe like an underlying seriousness. Or the idea of the poem as a commodity. You've got this line how much is this little poem going to cost me or I've used up all my money so I've got to shell this poem out I feel like there's usually kind of a distaste in poetry 
around the idea of money like it's sort of meant to be operating like outside of the market or something Mm -hmm. and you've got a line in bad bad where you say you should not think of getting a job with your poetry (laughs) (laughs) it's all coming back to haunt you now (laughs) yeah I suppose I wondered how you view poetry in your own life do you think of it as work or is it more play do you think poets deserve to be treated as though they're you know it's like a, a job like any other have you heard about the study that they did where I don't know, I read this somewhere that they actually found out that artists don't get pleasure from making money the same way that other people do. Oh, that's really interesting. That actually artists get pleasure from refusing money. And um, I really feel I can relate to that. So once again, like when I'm writing a poem, I'm pretty much just trying to give myself pleasure. And I imagine that I'm refusing money that like I'll write some poem that no one would pay for. So it's just me creating this construct where I'm refusing a bunch of money that someone might offer me. But I do remember, I, I'm so not going to remember her name, but there was a poet in Las Vegas one time who told me that Steve Wynn, who has this huge casino, the Bellagio in Las Vegas, he, I guess, went to poetry school. He was building this casino and he offered to pay her to write an inaugural poem for the casino and so she asked for (laughs) $50,000 and I remember I was just I was aghast I was like how did you know how did you know to ask for that much and she just and he refused her and then didn't pay her anything oh what a shame I was hoping that there would be like a $50,000 poem out there somewhere (laughs) I know but that was really aspirational so I think I just took that idea and just just thought to play with it a little bit I mean my favorite movies I have to admit also are kind of like the old-fashioned romantic comedies that have a lot to do with money I mean obviously like just straight up Jane Austen situation you know yeah I love this concept of love and money and poetry and money and what's anything worth and how are we going to squeeze some money out of it right Like that line from The Departed when I think of Leonardo DiCaprio, he says, I'd really like to squeeze some money out of it. And I mean, I think that I don't know how it could ever happen someday. But what if one of us could like get some a lot of money? Yeah. From our poems. It could happen. It could. It's a dream. <laughs> Did that answer the question? Probably not. But Oh, totally. It doesn't really matter if it sort of answers it. It's just a vehicle for saying things. But like, aren't you going to give me a grade on this interview? Oh, yeah. We'll give you a report card at the end of it. Good, because I really do well with praise. That's my number one favorite. You're doing very well. Thank you. See, more than money. Don't offer me money. That's interesting, though. I guess that is sort of what you do poetry for, isn't it, in some way? Yeah, I don't know. Ego. I hate to think of that, but. I mean, for me, I try, I just try to have a, like a, a laugh. Like I, I want to have a few laughs. Yeah. <laughs> and so I create them for myself alone in a little room. <laughs> and then they go out into the world. Yeah. And then I'm horrified at what I've done. Because <laughs> I always think, obviously, when one initially writes a poem, you're just doing it in your room on your own. I mean, unless you're doing it for a commission or something. Mm-hmm. And then you take a decision that you want to put it out there in the world. And I always wonder, like, what is behind that decision? I guess that's why I said, is it about praise? Because I suppose ultimately you do want someone to read it and like it. Mm -hmm. Or do you? I don't know. Or maybe I think maybe you just want to start all over again. Maybe it's just part of the process of putting it out there and realizing it's not good enough. And now we'll try again and it'll be better this time. 
I think if I don't put it out there, then I never would realize it's not good enough. I think if I just keep it, I'll be like, this is so good. (laughs) (laughs) But once I put it out there, I know, oh, no, that wasn't good enough. I'll do better. I'll do better next time in 10 years or whenever I decide to write another (laughs) I suppose you would always ultimately hope to, with each new book, to be improving on the one before otherwise. But do you consciously think about it when you, like, put your book out there? Do you think that I want people to see this and have a reaction or? I think, yeah, I think I asked you the question because I don't know myself. I often think, why the hell have I gone and done this again? Like, why have I published this? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But then you just keep on doing it. I don't know. What did Prince do? He just had a vault and he put all his music in the vault. And I think that's one way to go. Yeah, we need a poem vault. But then that brings us back to money. I suppose you need money to have, well, you could just have a cupboard. Well, you can write poems and publish them and people still don't believe you're a poet. So imagine if you didn't even publish them, then they really wouldn't believe they were doing anything. (laughs) We're kind of coming up with a new manifesto for poethood. (laughs) A new direction we'll go in now. Um, In Poemland, you write... In a poem, I like it to be very obscenely old-fashioned, like an old-fashioned stripper. And the past should go away, but it never does. Which seems to look ahead to Baby I Don't Care, which has a... Well, it's described in the blurb as flirting with nostalgia without ever succumbing to it. And when I was reading the book, it was kind of disturbing to reflect on sort of some of the values... It's not quite the right word, but the items that it sort of puts forward and so on, which it sort of in some ways seems to critique, although it's also very much the speaker is kind of embracing them, like the idea of wealth and the acquisition of wealth and power. I sort of felt like, well, these are still things that are very much in currency, even though this is sort of looking back to sort of classic cinema and the sort of outbursts of the speaker had a sort of vaguely Trumpian Mm -hmm. sort of vibe to them, although not in that extreme way the sort of grandiosity I suppose was the connection I was making it feels sort of shameful to think now I was not thinking of politics when I was writing it's funny that when you say the lines to me like the line of the obscenely old-fashioned like an old-fashioned stripper I actually remember that I wrote that line because of this scene in Night of the Hunter where Robert Mitchum goes to this kind of burlesque show and there's this woman doing this dance (laughs) anyway if anyone's ever seen it they would know what that is and so it makes me really happy to hear that but I did pay attention to the rest of the question too yeah no but that's cool that it's like the film theme influence was already percolating well it's just so nice for me to it's kind of like the poems then have all these memories in them that I that I really like but I think if I did feel think of anything political it might have been maybe a little bit of the sense of privilege and I knew that I wanted to be like yes there's this enormous privilege and so before we can start to pretend to that we can separate ourselves from it or cast it off first we have to acknowledge it and then almost wallow in it and so I have this section called VIPs and um, that would be a sort of a Trump maybe yeah. section and so at, that was at the beginning 
And so I said, just do it. Just go all the way, wallow in it. And actually, I don't know if you've ever seen, but there's this movie called The VIPs, which is completely hilarious. No, I haven't. And it has Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton in their domestic squalor, like in their dysfunctional relationship, basically, is the movie. And it is completely hilarious. And the um, credit sequence is just shows like a diamond necklace, a bottle of like Veuve Clicquot, you know, and it's just amazing. Anyway, it's about these people that are trapped in an airport and they have like various problems. And it's like high tech, like, you know, the airplane can't fly. And then finally, like the fog clears and they can all leave the airport and their problems have been solved or whatever. So then I, I wanted to have that at the beginning. And then at the end, I wanted it to be what is actually better than than that. And it's, it's like maybe a an honorable failure an honorable poverty it might be a little a little bit better than that <laughs> vip section yeah yeah but yeah. i don't know if i actually got there because obviously as a society we're nowhere near near to getting there but i think also i was writing because you know a lot of the movies that i was writing were movies that were from the depression era so in the 30s and in the 40s and then you would watch this movie like the thin man you know a detective sequence is going on and Myrna Loy is wearing like a fur trimmed satin robe <laughs> you're like oh okay I'm so glad we get to have that satin robe in this scene well why can't poetry just have like a bunch of satin around while we also try to maybe work out a couple things yeah, that or sounds... not, or we don't work anything out, but we just get a lot of like satin robes in there. I don't know. Seems like a nice thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't want to be wearing a satin robe? Well, like, why wouldn't you just add one if you could to any scene possible? But now they never do that. <laughs> well, maybe we should talk about your screenwriting. Are you putting satin robes in your screenplays? <laughs> yes, I'm completely putting gratuitous satin everywhere. It's hard, too, because you're not supposed to put anything unless it directly relates to the plot line. So you really have to work it in. But yeah. Sure, yeah. At what point did you sort of move from or between poetry to screenplay writing? Or how does the experience of writing one or the other differ for you? Do you sort of prefer one to the other? I think what's great is just to have both and go back and forth. Because I don't know about you, but I tend to burn myself out. And then I'm, okay, now I quit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So if I do that, now I'll just switch over to do another thing. Yeah. And it's equally, you know, makes just as little money as poetry. So there's no danger of making any money. <laughs> well, I guess there's a little danger, but not much. Um, have you done that before where you write one, you can put something away and then go over to something else? I don't know if I have really, because I don't tend to vary genre writings that much for mm -hmm. myself. I heard, okay, poets are good screenwriters because they understand imagery. And so then when you write your screenplay, you have to tell the story visually. And that's really fun. Yeah. And then also if you love dialogue, which poets probably really do, then you get to do that too. So both of those things are wonderful. You know, the one thing that really I'm not very good at is kind of writing a screenplay where you actually 
feel strong emotions <laughs> about it. Like when you watch a Hitchcock movie, are you like, wow, I really just felt strong emotions? No, <laughs> you don't. And that's the kind I write. So I'm storytelling, I guess. They're really big in screenwriting, like classes where they're like, you know, I'm a storyteller, they all say, but I am not a storyteller. I am, I want to be a movie teller. <laughs> like I like Hitchcock. Well, you know, like the satin robes is basically... You were talking a bit on Saturday about the sort of structure of screenplays, that there tend to be these very sort of frequent structures that come up again and again. I mean, I can't pretend I'm someone who knows a lot about film. That sounds to me like kind of hard work, like writing something that has to fit into a certain structure. I mean, obviously a poem does in a way, but there's no sort of rules about how this has to happen. You don't have a time scale, like I guess with a screenplay, you have to know that what you're writing will fit into a certain number of hours or something. Well, and it's just like poetry doesn't really have to. And probably the best is when it doesn't. But it's fun to pretend that it does for a while because it's like a shelter. The structure feels like a shelter. Yeah. Like, okay, I have to follow all these rules and then I'll do that and it'll work. And It's kind of funny to hear you talking about being comfortable following rules because within your poetry, it seems like the opposite. You're like, oh my God, poetry doesn't... <laughs> yeah. They say poetry should be this, but I say it should be that and... And maybe I just need a break from that, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you're secretly a very comfortable following rules and being a good girl. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. It's my dream to be a good girl. (laughs) We're getting the praise in now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought I'd just finish off with, I guess, quite a standard type question, but it's one that always interests me just to ask when you started writing poetry, like, What was it about poetry that made you think, I want to write poetry? And are there any poets that you do like who kind of get through the the not liking? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't write until college. You know, I was just like most probably you are too, just a bookworm type of person. (laughs) Yeah, you can just tell by, I like the way you're like, you look like one too. No, No, I just assume. My tiny eyes. No, no. I just assume that's how we were. Yeah. Reading all the books. Okay, so then what happened? Then I went to college and then I just took a class. And I just remember they said, okay, do this. And then I did it. I was pretty happy. I just knew how to do it kind of. And I I thought, and my teacher was really excited. I just felt like, okay, I guess I'll do this. Because it's like the one thing I've done here where (laughs) it seems to go okay. So yeah, I mean, as much as I've tried to get poetry out of my life, (laughs) there's still stuff, you know, that remains in your head from when you were young and loved poetry and carried the books around with you, right? And then put put them on your nightstand and read yeah oh so you did have a phase when you were younger and then yeah before I went to poetry school (laughs) (laughs) at poetry school for some reason it became I just that it burns that out of me I guess but you know I still think fondly even about Sylvia Plath because I guess it seems sort of embarrassing to say you like Sylvia Plath or something that was the impression I got but I, I did like her. <laughs> yeah, no, me too. I think there is, there is a, some kind of adolescent vibe attached to Sylvia Plath that if you still yeah. talk about her, it's a bit like, oh, come on. But then yes. equally, yes. she's Sylvia Plath. So like, what are you going to do? <laughs> well, yeah. And then where am I supposed to go after that? Like what? How? I don't know. But then, yeah, just Walt Whitman. I mean, Walt Whitman is like so excessive and 
out of the cradle, endlessly rocking. I tried to memorize that. Poets like that, you would want to have them in your system. You know, I always read Shakespeare, you know, now, anytime, just because that's really makes you feel nourished or what, I guess. Yeah. But my favorite things to read, really, I love to read Chekhov's plays. I'll read those just over and over and over again. And then I love the novels of Patricia Highsmith, and I read those over and over again. Okay. And I'm really the kind of person, I don't know if you're like this, if once I find something, I just do it. I have to keep doing it over and over and over again. I don't read novels and things so much again, but with shorter things, I do like to reread them. And I think there's some, that's really interesting that you mentioned that, because I think there's a way of you come to it new each time and then there's like a new um well it's like you I just want to interface with it I want to like mesh with it I was telling someone if I watch now movies and I'll see a line maybe from one of my poems in the movie I'll be like oh my line is in that movie (laughs) and now it's mine my line not the movies anymore (laughs) yeah that's kind of how it is I just want it to be in in me or something yeah you become kind of one with the the source (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. Um, thank you. I'll just ask you to finish off with another little reading from oh. the magazine. So, yeah. What is it? Are going to read Handsome? Yeah, that'd be great. Now let's discuss our minor grievances. One minor grievance is a handsome man. I want to look at him, but I don't want to listen to him. Am I allowed to say anything? Or should I just go lie down in my coffin? Now please don't underreact. I like this kind of buildup when you can only see the back of his head. And it's handsome as hell. It's a pure gorgeous back of the head. Now the poem is over. Well, be happy about it. Here's a man in a tuxedo unrolling a yo-yo. Are we going to wear suits and ties to rob the jewelry store now? I like to make a handsome man confused. You're too rich to love, darling. Why don't you go get thrown out of Sunday school? How come I never get any telegrams? I get lonelier and lonelier, and then I eat all the pink capsules for dinner. It's easy to be enraged in a ruffled dress. Look at yourself in the reflection of your flask. You used to be a hobby of mine. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming all the way to London. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to me. You can read Chelsea's poems in the summer 2017 issue of the Poetry Review, which are earlier drafts of the poems that appear in her book, Baby, I Don't Care, which is published by Wave and is available now. And you can read a review of that book in the current issue of the Poetry Review, Autumn 2018. There's also an interview with Chelsea published in Poetry News by Amy Key. And we also have copies of a print featuring a poem from Chelsea's book, Bad, Bad, and an illustration exclusive prints which are available from the Poetry Society and there will be some signed copies available. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.